evening, Calvary Chapel. It's uh, nice to see you all here once again. Uh, so we're kind of getting back into our regular routine of things here. It's been a little different uh, the past few weeks, um, but I, uh, I really enjoyed having Doug jump in and teach this past few weeks. I hope you guys did too. It's uh, fun seeing um, just yeah his, his perspective on this and seeing him grow as a teacher and uh, the opportunity for us to, to continue learning together as we do this. Uh, so tonight, uh, we are continuing our study verse by verse through the book of Judges. Uh, so Judges, as you've probably noticed, those of you who've been here, is a pretty interesting book. There's a lot of things that we wouldn't necessarily expect to see when we open up the scriptures. Um, I think I mentioned this before, but Judges isn't, you know, it's not like one of those books where, you know, you had a rough day and you come home and you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get some time with God. You know, I'm gonna I'm going to go to the Psalms, or you know, I'm going to go to the Gospels, and I'm going to flip open Judges and uh, see something here from God. Usually that's not quite the type of encouragement we're looking for in our day-to-day lives. Uh, but Judges is very much still inspired by God and part of the Scriptures for a reason. Uh, so there's a lot we can learn from the book of Judges. Um, so just a quick recap, Judges kind of connects Israel from their conquest of the promised land uh, to the establishment of the Davidic monarchy, uh, ruling over the nation of Israel. And so the time of the period of the judges is uh, after the land has been mostly conquered. There's still some isolated pockets of Canaanite resistance uh, that the Israelites failed to conquer. And so we see in the book of Judges how that gets to be more of an issue, that they're living amongst the Canaanites. um, And that in some cases, the Canaanites actually rise up and oppress the people of Israel. They overpower them and oppress them. Uh, We see the people of Israel also engage in the idolatrous worship practices of the Canaanites, the very thing that God was trying to keep them from doing when he told them to conquer the land, to drive out all the inhabitants, and to avoid dwelling among them and engaging in their lifestyle and the things that they did. Uh, So sadly, Israel does not do so well in this area, that we see uh, what we've introduced as the cycle of the judges, that Israel trusts God, they follow God, and then they fall away from God. They forget what God has done, they begin to sin and worship the idols of the nations around them. Uh, From that, God sends someone to oppress them to teach them a lesson, to punish them as it were. Um, And so a lot of time that's foreign nations, sometimes it's the Canaanites they're living amongst, uh, that somebody comes in uh, to bring hardship to Israel, to remind them that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Israel calls out to God for help. Um, God sends someone, a judge, a ruler, to lead the people, to defeat their enemies, um, to bring them back to him. And things go good for a while, and then Israel forgets, and they start the cycle all over again. And so we see that over and over again through the book of Judges and similarly um, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It reminds us of how forgetful people are, of how important it is to remember what God has done and to hold close to him in good times and in bad. We see a lot of cool things in the book of Judges, uh, a lot of great lessons through that cycle, through the darkness and the, the difficulties that come with sin. And we see God's ability to use anyone. So many of the judges are not morally upstanding people. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But God still uses these imperfect people to accomplish his will and his purposes. Uh, We also see a lot of hope in the book of Judges, that in the midst of the darkness of sin, of the forgetfulness of the people, that God is still giving them hope, that God is committed to rescuing his people from their sins, even when they continually turn away from him and disobey. And I think one of the biggest lessons of the book of Judges, and one that we're going to see here a lot tonight, is that the people of Israel, and likewise us, we need God's help. And we don't just need to be rescued from our enemies, we need to be rescued from ourselves. And so our focus point, kind of where we are this evening, is that um, the sin that dwells within us can be just as destructive 
as our external enemies. Uh, that the sin within us can be just as harmful as the stuff we see going on around us, or sometimes even more so. Uh, so in this passage we're reading tonight, we see the nation of Israel oppressed. And this time, they're not being oppressed by a foreign power, that it's not the Canaanites. It's not somebody else who's coming in from somewhere else, conquering them, taking their food, taking their land, uh, whatever it may be. Then in this case, we see a man rise up from within the nation of Israel and begin to oppress his fellow Israelites, that he begins to bring them hardship, uh, that a lot of the problems here are caused not by these outside forces, but by the sins of Israel and the sins of these people who dwell within Israel. Um, so that last week, uh, Doug wrapped up our study over the life of Gideon. Uh, Gideon stands out. He's an interesting character in the Judges, um, not unique necessarily compared to the ups and downs that they all have. Um, but, but Gideon is someone who, you know, there's, there's some great things about him and there's some not so great things about him. And uh, we talked about that last week, that the, the last little bit of Gideon's life was not so fantastic. That There were some mistakes he made, some things he did that had some negative consequences to them. And some of those mistakes had a notable impact on what we're going to read about tonight, on that next generation. Um, and so we'll uh, backtrack and cover a little bit of that later on. But so here in Judges chapter 9, uh, we'll kind of get introduced to our main characters we're going to be dealing with here tonight. So Judges 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So there's a few different names, few different places standing out as we read this. Uh, so right here in verse 1, we see this guy Abimelech come up, the son of Jeroboam. Uh, so if we backtrack a little bit, we learn that Jeroboam, that's a name that was given to Gideon because of an action he took. That's kind of his nickname or his second name, whatever it may be. So this is one of Gideon's sons. Um, so he's dwelling in the city of Shechem. And so Gideon's son here goes out, he goes to his mother's family and tries to convince them that he should be their ruler. Uh, so to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on here, we got to step back into the last little bit of chapter 8. So chapter 8 of Judges, in verse 29, it says, Jeroboam, or Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And so we see Gideon, again, made some not so great decisions at the end of his life. Uh, Doug talked about last week how in Scripture, uh, when we see polygamy come up in the Old Testament, uh, it was a very much a cultural thing. It's not necessarily expressly forbidden in what we read, but the outcome is never, ever, ever, ever good. And so we see some of that here, that Gideon decided he needed many, many wives. It doesn't even tell us how many he had. Enough wives to have 70 sons. That's a lot for one guy 
to keep up with. So, one of these sons, it says he has a concubine who lived in Shechem. Uh, so this is someone who probably you know, wasn't even that close to him, that she lived in another city, uh, that somehow she was his servant, um, and father, or, and mothered this child for Gideon. Uh, so this is someone who is probably um, kind of lower on the family pecking order compared to the rest of his brothers, uh, those who were living in their father's household, um, fathered by their other mothers. Um, so Abimelech, again, kind of an interesting guy. The name he's given to is kind of interesting, uh, that we see the name Abimelech pop up in a few other places in Scripture. It appears to be some sort of a title, um, usually given to a king or a ruler. So why Gideon would have named his questionably legitimate son living in another city the king or the son of the king seems a bit odd. But again, he's kind of on a string of bad decisions here towards the end of his life. So maybe it had something to do with that. Um, So this is the guy we're talking about here. Uh, A little more background for what's going on as well. Um, At the end of chapter 8, in verse 34, we see that it says, The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. So we've got this guy, questionably legitimate son uh, of Gideon, living in a different city, the people of Israel have forgotten what God did already. And it's only been one generation. They've already fallen back into that cycle, forgotten what God has done. And they've also not failed to honor, or they have failed to honor or respect the family of Gideon, of their leader who delivered them from the last oppressor and helped bring them back into peace and prosperity. And so they've forgotten what God has done. They've forgotten what Gideon has done for them. Uh, They return to their sin And so in the midst of all this, Abimelech rises up, and he sees an opportunity here. Um, So he decides that he wants to be the ruler. Um, And so with what we read in the beginning of chapter 9 here, we see uh, he goes out, again, to his mother's family, to the people he lives amongst in the city of Shechem, and he tells them, hey, there's 70 of my brothers. Would you rather have 70 guys all trying to take my father's place and rule and make decisions and all trying to collect, you know, taxes or tribute from you guys? Or would you rather just have one do that? And besides, you guys are related to me. We're close. You know me. You should let me be your leader. So apparently his smooth talking worked relatively well. Um, So he goes around the city and it says... In Judges 9, 3, that the people's hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. And after that, they even give him money. So they give him 70 pieces of silver. It sounds like they took out of the temple of Baal, the false god. And Abimelech used that money, it says in verse 4, to hire worthless and reckless fellows. Uh, so this guy is a smooth talker that he's trying to go through and do these things. And uh, he collects these questionable characters that are going with him on this. That um, he is surrounding himself not necessarily with great people. um, Kind of doing the opposite of what you would think a king or someone trying to be successful would do. Uh, That he is seeking to fulfill his own goals and his own purposes. And so he gets these guys together. So the first step he's got to do is to get rid of the competition. That he wants to be the king. He wants to rule. Um, that he is Gideon, the former leader's son. He's got to get rid of everybody else. So he goes back to where his father lived. And he killed all of his brothers. Well, all but one. So he had 70 brothers. Gets rid of all but one of them. The youngest, it says that we're told, escaped. And so after that happened, uh, he, gets, he has his worthless group, kills all his brothers. And then it says in verse 6, the leaders of Shechem came together and they went and made Abimelech king. So this group of people has enabled him. He has seized power and declared himself to be king. 
And so this is kind of a string of bad decisions, a string of sinful choices leading to some problems. Now, at this point in time, Israel was not supposed to have a king, uh, that God had given them some rules for whenever they did have a king down the road. But at this point, they were supposed to be living as a theocracy with God himself as their king, uh, with the prophets and the priests leading the people in worship and in day-to-day life. And that's not at all how this is working because the people were not walking in obedience to God. And so we see kind of just this whole giant mess created by the people's disobedience to God, their unwillingness to follow his commands and his rules, and to trust in what he is doing. And so Abimelech doesn't at all fill God's commands for a king, that he's a king at the wrong time, uh, that when God gave them a king, the king was supposed to be a man who loved God, that he was supposed to sit down and write himself a copy of the Mosaic law, that he was supposed to know God's word and be someone who would rule in accordance with God, God's word and share that with the rest of the nation. And so we see just a lot of issues with what's going on here. And so we see in the following verses here what happens next. Uh, so Abimelech has seized power, been named king, killed all of his brothers, and then his one brother, Jotham, is left. In verse 7, it says, When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are appointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So Jotham, Gideon's half-brother, gets away from this mess where all of his brothers are being murdered. Uh, He escapes. He climbs up on top of Mount Gerizim. Uh, So the place where this is all happening is kind of notable too. Um, That Mount Gerizim is one of the mountains that the people of Israel stood on top of when they first entered the Promised Land. And uh, they shouted the blessings and the curses back and forth that God had told them would happen if they obeyed God or if they disobeyed God. Um, So this is a place um, where several different notable events had already happened in the life of the nation of Israel. And Abimelech is kind of rebelling against all of that and saying, no, this was what God was doing, that these are God's people, that they're supposed to be following God, that God is ruling, but I don't want any of that, that I am going to be king, I'm going to reign here in the place of God, that he's rebelling against God. And so Jotham climbs on top of the mountain and he tells this story. And this is really the first parable recorded in the Bible that we usually associate those with Jesus. Um, But this is a parable that it has all those same pieces. It's a story um, illustrating a point. And so he gives this parable about the trees, that all the trees decide they want a king. And so they go amongst these different types of trees. And they ask them one by one, hey, you should rule over us. You should reign over us. And all the trees they ask refuse. They say, no, I have something I don't want to give up in order to be king of the trees, um, that I don't want that. And so they go down the list. And then finally, in verse 14, the trees come to the bramble, uh, which is kind of a scraggly, brushy bush. And they say, you reign over us. You know, this this scraggly bush, be king of the trees. And the bramble responds to them in verse 15. If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. 
But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so Jotham, when he's telling this parable, he's basically saying, hey, you guys could have chosen so many people to rule over you. Why have you chosen the scraggly bush to be king of the trees? Why have you chosen this questionable guy, using questionable means, to be your king? This seems like a good idea. And he says that if this has happened in good faith, if you've done this for good reason, that's fine. But if it hasn't happened in good faith, then let fire come from this bramble and destroy the trees. And so I think there's kind of a prophetic aspect to this even, that he's pronouncing a curse upon these people, that they have gone against God's will, that they have enabled a sinful man to be king in a sinful way. And so Jotham is pronouncing this curse, saying, you know, if this has been done for good reason, fine. But if it hasn't, which sounds like he doesn't believe it has been done for good reason, then this king that you've appointed will destroy you all. That this is not going to end well. And so Jotham continues to explain a little bit of what's going on here in the following verses. In verse 16, he says, Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved. For my father fought for you and risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house, this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Bear and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham comes up, he climbs this mountaintop, he tells this parable about you know, what he sees in the situation here, pronounces a curse upon the people of Shechem who have enabled this to happen. And then he has to flee and hide because he knows that his brother is going to come try to find him and kill him just like he did the rest of the family. And so he explains this parable um, with an interesting kind of addition at the end there. So in verse 20 he says, uh, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. But he also said, let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and devour Abimelech. And so he's saying, if this is not a good thing, if this has not been done rightly and justly, then all of you should be destroyed. And the, the leaders of Shechem who enabled Abimelech should be destroyed. And Abimelech should also be destroyed by them. I think when we read through this, uh, there's a few issues, pretty major ones, we see with Abimelech. Uh, but I think a big one is pride. That Abimelech has chosen to place himself at a higher level than what he was supposed to be at. Um, that we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He continues saying, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so Abimelech in this situation is doing just the opposite of what Peter is talking about here. That instead of trusting in God, of being faithful where God had placed him, that Abimelech has chosen to exalt himself in the sight of God and of others. That he's chosen to seize power and glory that were not rightfully his at the detriment of those around him and because of that, he is going to be humbled by God. That he will be brought down low because of his pride and because of the sins that he committed against the rest of the people. It's also interesting to think about what it is people look at in 
a leader. Now, the people of Shechem were swayed by the sweet-talking of Abimelech, that he went amongst them, that he got his family in on the deal. Uh, They were going around questioning the leader that God had given to the people of Israel. Uh, Gideon was appointed by God, that God gave Gideon great success in spite of his failures and his shortcomings. And God used him to help the people greatly. And Abimelech is causing the people to question what God has done here. Uh, that they do not want to follow and to continue serving the leader God had given them. Um, Oftentimes, I think people aren't necessarily looking for the leader that God has appointed. They're looking for the leader that's going to give them what they want. The leader that promises to make things better, to give them ease, uh, to answer questions the way they want them to be answered. The people of Shechem fell into this trap, really, because they weren't looking for a godly leader. They were looking for their kind of leader. They wanted the one who would give them things that they wanted instead of leading them in faithfulness and obedience to God. And so we see when things go bad here in the next few verses. Uh, So Judges 9.22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech, and Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the fields and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. And so we see in this narrative some new characters enter into what's going on. So we have Abimelech who seized power, declared himself king. We have the rulers of Shechem. And then we see a few other guys come in here. Uh, It's interesting to note how this is all happening. Uh, That Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, it says, that he's seized power, that um, he manages to maintain it for for a number of years. And then in verse 23, it says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So the leaders of Shechem, again, were the ones who brought Abimelech power. That They uh, gave him the money he needed to start his little miscreant army. Um, that they helped him take power, take over when he was not supposed to. And so now God, we're told, has sent a spirit to divide them to create animosity between this group of people that had seized power against God's will. God is able to use whomever he will for whatever he will. We talked about that quite a bit this past Sunday, uh, that God is sovereign over all that is. And even those who oppose God can still be used for his purposes. And so in this case, We're told that an evil spirit is being used to create division between God's enemies. Uh, That you would think that this is something that would not be doing what God wanted it to. But this spirit is being used by God to accomplish his purposes. God is that powerful. And so the spirit comes and it creates animosity between the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech. And we're told the reasoning for this in verse 24 is to bring 
justice. It says that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So God has seen what has happened. And even though this evil man unjustly reigning over the kingdom has been doing so for some time, God knows about it and God is going to bring both Abimelech and the men who put him in power to justice. That God has a plan and that God is going to be faithful to carry out that plan and see it through here. That God is a God of justice. Uh, another interesting thing we note when we read this is that God sees the men of Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, as being equally guilty in this case. That Abimelech was the one who declared himself to be king. Abimelech was the one who gathered his little army together, who murdered countless people, who was unjustly ruling, but the men who put him there are also held accountable for that. Enabling someone to sin is sinful. Uh, we think about, uh, even within our society today, we have laws that give out fairly harsh punishment to people who have enabled somebody else to do something wrong. Um, when I was uh, in college, I was in a, a class, um, there were a lot of people studying criminal justice and um, the justice system, things like that. And so uh, we actually had the, the police department in the town contact one of our professors and say, hey, if, if you have any students under 21 who want to, you know, come out with us and um, do some, some sting operations on liquor stores, you know, let us know. That, that could be a great opportunity. Um, I uh, did not take the opportunity to go out on that. I was busy with other things. It did sound fun, though. Um, but so they would, you know, get somebody who was, you know, right on that, that bubble, you know, looked like they might be old enough to buy alcohol, send them into the liquor store, you know, have them grab something, try to buy it, and have the cops waiting outside, seeing what happened. Um, but there's a reason that there's consequences for that. That you know, somebody who is enabling someone to break the law knowingly and willingly is guilty and should be held accountable for that. And so this is the same type of situation that the men, the leaders of Shechem, that have enabled Abimelech knowingly to seize power against God's will, to do wrong against people, to commit crimes against his own family, that these men were also guilty of breaking God's law. And as such, they had to be held accountable for what they're doing. And so to do this, God is using this spirit that's creating division uh, that we're told that the leaders of Shechem start to set men out and ambush those who come by along the way. Uh, so the nation of Israel, a lot of what made it significant in ancient times was that it was part of uh, some really, really heavily used trade routes. And so people would be traveling along these areas going between the Fertile Crescent and Egypt. And so they'd be coming through this area, lots of people, lots of goods. And so people being robbed here was a big deal. There was probably a great opportunity for them to become wealthy, uh, but this also really did not look well for whoever was ruling the area at that time. That Abimelech was supposed to be in power over what's going on. And here's these men robbing those who are traveling and causing all these problems. And while this is going on at the same time, we're also told about this other guy in verse 26, Gaul, the son of Ebed. He moves into Shechem, we're told, and the leaders of Shechem put their confidence in him. That these men begin to trust in Gaul and he really creates division within the city of Shechem against Abimelech. And this kind of comes to a peak when they, they gather their grapes, uh, they tread them out into wine, and they have this celebration. And he comes up and he tells the men of, of Shechem, why are we serving this guy? You know, he's the son of Gideon. Um, he, you know, his father didn't even live here. You know, he's only half related to all of you. You know, sure, if we want to serve, you know, the, the son of the, the father 
of Shechem, the father of our city. That's fine, but why are we serving this guy? He says, if I were in charge, things would be different. In verse 29, he says, would that the people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say, increase your army and come out. So he's basically throwing out a challenge to Abimelech's authority and his power at this point. Um, That Gaul is not necessarily a great guy. Not necessarily someone who's upstanding and serving God. But God is still using him in this situation to bring justice to Abimelech and to the men of Shechem. So he throws out this challenge to Abimelech's authority and his power over the area. And some of the people who serve Abimelech are not so happy about this. Uh, So in verse 30, we see what Zebul, he was the ruler underneath Abimelech, how he responds to this. Um, So this is kind of Abimelech's right-hand guy in this area. So Judges 9.30, when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Abed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Zebul contacts Abimelech, tells him what's going on, that the people are stirring up against him. And he says, bring your army down here. You know, we'll deal with it. You know, they don't even have to know What's going on? Verse 34. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gaul, the son of Abed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains from it. And Gaul spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zabal drove out Gaul and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So these men, Gaul kind of leads this, you know, small rebellion against Abimelech. Uh, Zabal lets Abimelech know, sends his army, um, kind of, you know, playing, playing stupid almost inside the city. Oh, no, that's, there's not an army there. You're seeing something else. That's, that's not what's going on. And then uh, they finally, it gets to the point where he can't deny it anymore. And then he, he calls out this guy, basically. Zebul says to him in verse 38, where is your mouth now? You know, you were talking such a big game earlier. What are you going to do about it now? Why don't you go out and fight with him like you said you would? And so Zebul, this guy is kind of, you know, stuck in the middle here that he basically is forced to follow on his boast that he has to go out and fight against them. And he's defeated by Abimelech. He puts down this rebellion against him. And he's driven out of the city. Um, Abimelech, so he's defeated the ringleader of this rebellion, but he's still not satisfied with what's going on. And so in verse 42, we continue. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. He razed the city and sowed it with salt. Not the nicest guy. So Abimelech... He's defeated the ringleader of this rebellion, but he's not satisfied with that. So he waits till the next day, 
And we're told the people leave the city, open the gates, go out into the fields to do whatever labor they had for the day. And when that happens, he sends part of his army to block the gate of the city, and the rest of the army goes around, kills everybody out in the fields, and then they go in and capture the city. They kill all the people who are in the city, they raise the city to the ground, and then sow it with salt, we're told. And so he not only destroyed the leader of the rebellion, he destroyed all the people who rebelled or were even associated with it there, and then he destroyed their city and put salt all over their cropland so they, they would not be able to even return there and grow anything for quite some time. That he was very brutal in his vengeance. That he wanted no threats whatsoever to his reign and his rule. And I think a lot of this really was probably driven by fear. That Abimelech knew that he was not the rightful king. He had not been appointed to his rule by God. And so he had to make it work on his own. That he chose to do whatever he had to, whatever he could to maintain his power, including brutally murdering these people, destroying their home, and making it so that no one could live there and be successful. That that's how jealous he was for his reign. That's how scared he was of any threats to it and how much he had to defend that. And this stands in stark contrast to other rulers we see within the scriptures. I think uh, King David is such a great example of this as we read continuing on in the Old Testament uh, that David refused to take power from Saul until it was the right time, that he would not take power until he knew it was within God's timing, even after he had been anointed and named as the rightful king of Israel. Uh, we also see when David is threatened that he is not quick to jump to his own defense, that he seeks God, he trusts God, and he knows that God will defend him and that God will maintain his power. And being able to trust God and know that you are walking in his will gives so much more peace than trying to force our way into things, to hold on to accomplishments, to power, and to success by our own might. Um, that we're going to be driven by fear and we're going to have a hard time holding on to those things if we're doing it on our own. But if we're able to trust in God to walk in obedience to him and to know that he will keep us where we need to be, we can hold so much more loosely onto our positions, onto our power, onto our possessions and wealth, uh, that we can trust that God will use those things as he will for our good and for his glory. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so if we remember that, that will enable us to have peace and to not feel like we have to fight so hard for things. That we can work hard, but we can trust God to bring us where we need to be, to keep us where we need to be, and to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in and through us. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Again, he continues to carry on this campaign of brutality against those who opposed him. That the leaders go, they enter this stronghold, this fortified tower, hold up there. Abimelech gets his army, they all go out, cut down some trees, go pile them over the tower, set fire to it, and just wait for it to burn down with everyone inside. Not the nicest guy, not the king that Israel was supposed to have. Verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. 
But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So Abimelech has killed all these people. He's destroyed the city. He destroyed the fortified tower of Shechem that the people were in. Killed all the people that were inside of it. And then he goes and marches against this other city, Thebes, which apparently was somehow also associated with this rebellion against his rule. And so he goes to this one, kind of the same thing happened as the last city. So they all flee to the tower, lock themselves in, and go up to the roof to, you know, throw down weapons and objects on top of them and fight against them. And uh, so he's thinking, hey, we just saw this. I know what to do. Let's burn it down just like we did before. We'll kill all these people and show them who's really in charge. And so this is going along just fine. And then we're told in verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Um, So in this time, they had to grind their own grain to make bread. Um, So a lot of the the kind of primitive mills they had, it would basically be a rock that was kind of bowl-shaped, would be the lower millstone. And so they'd put the grain inside of that, and then they had a rounded one they put on top of it, and they would just use that to grind the grain down into flour and use that to bake bread. And so this is basically a round stone anywhere from, you know, this big to that big that was thrown off the top of his tower, hits him in the head. He knows he's done for. It's over. Uh, So Abimelech, being the proud guy he is, doesn't want to die in battle at the hands of a woman throwing cooking implements at him. This is not the way that, you know, mighty warriors and kings are supposed to go. And so he tells this younger guy who's with him, who's his armor bearer, kind of helping him carry his things. He's like, I don't want to, they can't remember me this way. This is not going to be my legacy. Draw your sword and finish me off. We'll we'll let you do it instead and get the credit for killing me instead of, you know, this woman who just threw something off the tower at me. And so that happens, you know, and that's pretty much the end of it. Uh, We do see later in the scriptures that Abimelech, despite uh, his attempts here, is remembered for being killed by a woman throwing the millstone at him. So he failed on that regard as well. Uh, But it's interesting, verse 55 tells us, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. They saw their leader had died, their self-declared king, the one who had been brutally ruling over these people and exacting vengeance on his enemies, that he was gone and it was over. They all went back to their regular lives, tried to forget about what had happened probably, and didn't have to worry about this evil man ruling over them any longer. And in verse 56, we're reminded that this is how God had brought justice to Abimelech and to the rulers of Shechem. That God had returned the evil he had committed on their heads. That God saw what they had done, and it did take some time. And God used some interesting means, but God brought justice to these men. We also see in this chapter that going against God never ends very well. Um, Just uh, a few days ago, I was reading through Acts chapter 5, where we're going to be um, this Sunday for our services. And we see Gamaliel leading the Sanhedrin. And uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do about these Christians, about this new group that's preaching the resurrected Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And he steps up in their meeting in Acts 5.38. 
And he says, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so he's reminding these people that you cannot stop God. That it doesn't matter how powerful you are, what you're doing, that if this is the will of God, you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. And that's where Abimelech found himself in this chapter. And as far as big picture lessons, it's a little bit harder. Uh, that as we look at this, a lot of the time we go through judges and it kind of just seems like a mess. That there's just people doing terrible things all over the place. Uh, that the people of Israel were supposed to conquer the promised land and dwell in it, set apart and holy to God. That they were supposed to be a people whose life was oriented around the worship of their God. That they would show love and mercy and compassion to those around them. That they would worship God in faithfulness. That they would be different from the sinful nations around them. And in Judges, we see that that's not at all what is happening. And we see the people of Israel have so many issues with their enemies. But we see in chapters like this that the problem wasn't just their enemies. That the problem was just as much with Israel. That the problem wasn't just that they were being corrupted by outside influences. The problem was that their own hearts were corrupt. That they needed a God who would step into their lives, who would rescue them from themselves, who would give them new hearts that would be able to know and understand him. A God who would give them peace, who would give them hope, who would save them, not just from their enemies, but from the sin that continued to draw them back into evil, into problems, and into oppression. And just like the people of Israel, we need God, and we need rescue. And we certainly have outside influences that give us trouble. But so much of what we need rescue from, so much of what we need God to do, is to save us from our sins, from ourselves. And that's exactly what God has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. That God has stepped into our lives and our world. That he has made a way for us to be forgiven. And he has made a way for us to receive new hearts. Hearts that are capable of loving and knowing and obeying him. And that is how the gospel connects with what we're looking at tonight. Uh, that we see the same God working faithfully to save his people in the book of Judges and in our lives every day around us. So at this point, I'll ask Doug to come back up here and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, God, for your love and your faithfulness. Thank you that uh, you are a God who is good, that you're a God who is powerful, that you're a God who can use any means to bring about justice, to bring about good, to bring about your glory, Lord. And I thank you that you're a God who loves us, that you know us and care for us, and that you save your people. I thank you for your repeated rescues of the nation of Israel, reminding us of how persistent you are to save your people. And I thank you that you are just as faithful to step into our lives, to rescue us, Lord. I pray that you would uh, be with us, God, that you would help us to walk in faithful obedience to you out of love and gratitude for what you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.